Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 7, 2018, focusing on repatriating previously taxed income and accessing foreign cash. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Jeff Endress, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Julie Allen, a PwC tax partner focusing on mergers and acquisitions, and Colin Ryan, a PwC advisory partner focusing on deals. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on baseline setting around some of the basics around tax reform relevant to mandatory repatriation and accessing foreign cash and how that cash generally is being redeployed by companies. Jeff, if you could, I know we're going to do just a little bit of baseline setting and try and dig into the, the basic rules we're going to get into before we dive heavy into the dialogue. Yeah, I think just a general overview, everybody's aware that tax reform has happened. And as part of tax reform, Section 965 was enacted. And essentially what that says is to the extent that you had unremitted earnings in your foreign CFCs and you had to look at the amount of those unremitted earnings on November 2nd or December 31st, and compare those two numbers, and the greater of those two amounts uh, was included as a, an additional category of subpart F income in the year in which you had the, the inclusion. I think with that came a lot of uh, questions and complexities that people weren't necessarily uh, thinking about at the time, and now our clients have been dealing with those issues as they've been going through their analysis for year-end purposes and as well as those fiscal year taxpayers that are currently, currently in the year in which they have to calculate the 965 includable amount. I think some of those issues relate to, you know, to the extent that you have deficits in some of your foreign corporations and they're allocated to other CFCs in your structure. How does the how do those deficits get allocated? And then what happens as a result of those deficit allocations? We're going to talk about some of those items as part of the, the presentation at a later point in time and get into some of the traps that may happen as a result of those deficits. Um, reducing the earnings and profits of your CFCs in your toll charge year. Yeah, that's great. I think, Julie, you're going to spend a couple minutes just talking about the territorial system in general and some of the changes there. Again, level setting for the discussion we're going to have around repat. Yeah, definitely. And, and if we look at the mechanism that really, when we're looking at the deemed repatriation toll charge, if we look at the mechanism that gets us to the territorial tax system, it's really the new Section 245 Cap A where that's allowing a domestic corporation a dividends received deduction for those for the, that foreign source portion of the dividends that they receive from a specified 10% owned foreign corporation. And so a couple of points to consider with that is it is a great point that they get the dividend received deduction, but there are a couple of issues that go right along with this. I would say one to consider is that are the foreign tax credits. There are no foreign tax credits or deductions um, allowed for those foreign taxes that are paid or accrued with respect to those dividends that qualify for the DRD. And then also um, another issue to consider is just what exactly is a dividend or some of the questions that have come up. For instance, we might have hybrid instruments that are repaid in stock and does that qualify as a dividend or when we repatriate the PTI, does that qualify as a dividend? So those two are really some of the key issues that come up when we're considering this DRD. And I think some of that is related to you're not necessarily relying on the DRD for purposes of potentially a hybrid stock dividend or a distribution of PTI. They're not necessarily includable as taxable in the U.S. group. Agreed. So listen, this is really the foundational elements of what happened from a reform standpoint. 
next to the rate reduction that was sort of the big headline of what happened, one of the big things I know talking with our clients that was um, critical to them in the reform space was getting to a spot where um, foreign income was being taxed differently than what it was before. I recognize this is a bit of a repeal of deferral, but but it, that's to the extent of, of the guilty rules that are out there. Um, but this was a substantial shift, and one of the big pieces was access to foreign capital that previously they had been unable to access without a significant tax cost. So I know we're going to get into it, but sort of understanding those things is foundational to just understanding what changes our clients are seeing with the ability to access capital. Colin, so, you know, the the ink on the bill is a couple months old here. Um, what are you seeing as you're out talking to companies right now? Are companies themselves starting to reassess how they might deploy capital for sort of value-adding strategies within their organization in light of these changes? Absolutely. I would say more than now than ever, yeah. Ken, because now there's access to capital. We'll get into it in, in the coming slides of, of how to deploy that capital. But a lot of companies are going back to the drawing board looking at their strategy of capital deployment because due to tax reform, returns have now changed on all of the investments that they were looking at. Um, but let alone the investments that they might have shelved a couple of years ago now may make sense because of the, the returns now due to investing in the U.S. heighten those returns. Right. And it's not so much even looking at the deal environment as I'm, I'm talking to people. Sometimes it's just investments you may have out there to um, digitize a plant, to do some other exactly. stuff that we might have shelved before that all of a sudden we've got capital to look at. And to your point, the ROI on that may have changed yeah. either because the underlying expenditure I'm making right now, I can expense for tax purposes or other pieces that are out there. So it is a really a change dynamic. I, I'm glad to see yeah. your feeling. I'm, I'm certainly seeing it as I dialogue with clients right we, now. We've, we've see, actually seen a client now build a, a new plant because of tax reform change that they historically were putting Band-Aids on the plant to keep yeah. it together. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So seeing a lot of that right now. Well, that was that was intended to be the goal of what was being driven from a standpoint of domestic growth. So good to see the results come through. Um, with that, uh, the most common question we had, which will play into what we're doing right now, is external and internal debt pay down or refinancing. So um, you know that's, that's probably consistent with what we're seeing a lot of, out of a lot of people. There's been a lot in the news lately related to share buybacks. Interestingly enough, that was probably the least common answer in here. So it's good to see where, where folks' heads are at. So with that, why don't we jump into the next section. And Colin, I'm going to come to you and maybe give us a little bit of a historical perspective around how cash has been deployed by organizations. And then we can talk about how some tax reform may change that dynamic a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cash, the availability to, to capital and cash is at an all-time high. Um, so we're really at unprecedented amounts where um, companies have a, a choice to deploy the cash internally on strategic initiatives or M&A projects or to return it to shareholders through dividends and share buybacks. Um, the, the key thing to keep in mind here is um, due to any windfall that you might have had from tax reform, that's not a free pot of money. You know, you, you can see this in the, in the last quarter of 2017, the equity prices, act, uh, you know, skyrocketed uh, right then. And so that what that tells you is that investors are already staking claim to that free cash flow expected from a lower tax rate. That's, that's a very important thing to keep in mind because we see a lot of companies want to deploy capital when they've already committed it elsewhere or, or, or an investor expects them to commit it elsewhere. Um, now, the good thing is, is with so much capital in the ecosystem today that companies have access to, they really can't deploy all of that capital internally because there just aren't enough good projects that are returning, you know, 
significant amounts of intrinsic value above where your hurdle rates are. So because of that, over the last um, 15, 16 years, what we've seen is around 35 to 45% of total cash being deployed back to investors through dividends or share buybacks. You know, this year, given tax reform, I expect to see that, that amount return to shareholders on the upper bounds. Oh, it's, it's great perspective um, from a standpoint of, of what people are doing out there. I do think that dynamic is going to be very, very interesting. We're going to do it a little bit later, but you know, there's a little bit of a stigma as it relates to share buybacks. If you think from a DC policy perspective, which maybe doesn't follow traditional economic principles, we'll talk about that a little bit yeah. later when, when we get into some of this stuff. So, um, Julie, I'm going to turn to you here, and the top answer we got out of everything from a standpoint of uses was external and ex uh, internal debt paydown and financing. So, you want to dig in a little bit as to some of the considerations people should be thinking through here? Sure. And I think, Ken, this is definitely one where companies, it's a perfect opportunity to look at using that cash to pay down or refinance debt. And, and we've broken this up. I want to break it up into internal and external to kind of give a different picture onto what they can consider. So, I think even before getting there, it's important for companies to consider what impact this is going to have on their financial statements, right? With the debt being taken off their books or looking at a debt equity, a debt versus equity scenario and their not only their financial statements but also their financial ratios, it's an important time to consider that. And also to consider paying down debt or refinancing isn't always free, right? Many times that comes with a cost, the prepayment penalty. So they have to weigh using the cash for this purpose versus the cost that it's going to take. Um, a couple of points to consider on internal indebtedness is right now fiscal year taxpayers have a great opportunity with respect to debt because they can accelerate a repurchase premium deduction um, at a rate that's higher than the 21% tax rate. I can't get into complete detail on how that's done, but I want to just say one point on it. This needs to be done the right way because if done the right way, you can get that repurchase premium deduction in the year of repurchase. If not done the right way, it can end up being amortized over the life of a new debt instrument. And so companies definitely want to make sure they're consulting on that point, but it's a benefit for fiscal year taxpayers right now. I mean, just to pause on that point, sure. what, what you're getting to, and this is broader than even this concept, but for 2017 calendar year taxpayer that's out there, we've got a tax rate at 35%. We're dropping to 21%. Mm -hmm. Deductions are going to get, obviously, more value, more return on a deduction at 35 than 21. So to the extent people are trying to work through debt planning, to the extent they can accelerate that deduction, they're going to get more out of it. We've gotten into similar deductions here around funding, pension, doing other things, just putting some context around it. So 2017 is a good year to have deductions, essentially. It is. Yeah. It is. And that's a, that's a great point. The other areas that we're considering... And like I said, with, with this fiscal year taxpayer benefit, they just want to make sure it's done, done the right way, that they're consulting on that one. Another point to consider really is Section 385. I think many folks hope that that would go away. It's still out there. <laughs> and with that, if we're redoing internal debt and we end up with the U.S. issuer, we have to consider those rules that they can possibly recharacterize some of the debt to equity. And then just really the amount and the location of the refinancing or where they want their cash to be pooled are important considerations. Um, with respect to external indebtedness, I would say the most important thing is just modeling and looking at what is the, where's, how do they right-size that worldwide indebtedness. Um, and they want to consider where the appropriate interest deductions will lie. One thing to consider there is, you know, the U.S., we have new interest limitation rules, right? We can look at that and say, that might be a good place to put it. We've got to consider those rules, but we also have to consider the uncertainty around those rules that exist right now because the application of those rules to groups or to you know, certain CFC activities, we're still waiting for guidance on them. Yeah. 
So. I mean, excellent point. And just, I know we're going to get into some examples here, but just traditional thinking, there wasn't a limitation in the U.S. on deducting interest, even if it was essentially funding foreign operations other than maybe how it might bleed through to foreign tax credit calculations. So people were getting deduction for 35% for carrying their debt here. Given what's happened, um, and that's why it's the top consideration for people right. to look at, um, folks are going to have to rethink what where they're borrowing and, and where, where their debt sits um, as a result of this. Because to your point, 163J kicks in and that, that may limit the amount of interest expense deduction. Even if you're getting an interest expense deduction, it's at 21%, not 35% before. There are other countries out there that'll provide a comparable benefit. So the notion that having the debt in the US was getting you a sizable deduction as compared to where it was globally, that, that whole dynamic has changed. So, And that has a lot of flow through implications around treasury operations where you have treasury people, how you work through all those things. So there's, there's a whole lot of flow through stuff related to it. And I know you guys are going to get into some examples here, but that, that's, that's a big takeaway. And it's, it doesn't surprise me that that's where people are thinking was they're, they're trying to figure out how to redeploy capital. Agreed. Agreed. And I think to your point, considering where it is or considering where they're getting that deduction, the mo we, I can't stress enough the importance of modeling and considering this. So maybe to the point of, um, the business interest deduction in the U.S., let's take a minute and pause on that and just talk about what the change is, right? Because essentially, if we look at that, Section 163J, a taxpayer is allowed a deduction, and it's the sum of, generally the sum of two items, right? It's generally the sum of that business interest income for the taxable year plus 30% of their adjusted taxable income. So we want to run through a couple of scenarios that really show you the difference on where we place this interest is really important. So let's just take this base case, and this is going to carry through every example. So if we look at this base case where we have a U.S. parent, and let's just say their adjusted taxable income is $300, and they own 100% of country X, whose EBITDA is $300, and their tax rate is 30%. Let's assume that the bank loans $200 to U.S. parent. So if we look at how this interest expense limitation plays out over on the, the right-hand side of the slides, you see that let's assume that that U.S. parent with that debt, they have $100 of interest expense that they're going to pay. And in this example, I'm not going to get to country X. We're going to show that in a minute on how that's important. This is just going to be a base case. But if we say if U.S. parent pays $100 of interest expense to the bank, then U.S. parent, if we look at their adjusted taxable income, to determine how much our interest deduction limitation is, if we take that adjusted taxable income of $300 and take 30% of that, we get a $90 deduction. So if you compare the two, where before I think many folks thought, well, 163J is just applicable to related parties, it's on all of the interest that we're looking at. But if you look at this example, take the $100 interest expense versus the $90 allowed deduction, Basically, $10 of that interest expense is carrying forward, and we don't get a deduction. So if you take that at a 21% tax rate, we haven't utilized $2 of the benefit. So I think this shows that we're leaving something on the table, and it's an important decision for companies to look at and say, you know, where should they push that debt? Should it go to a local country so that they can maximize the U.S. benefit, but also get a benefit in the local country? Yeah, and, and on top of that, again, you got to factor in the rate changes that are happening here too because you, you, in the structure you had before, you had $100 of interest expense at 35%. Now you've got $90 of interest expense at 21%. It's, it's a big, big difference from a standpoint of economics. Yeah, That's a good lead-in to, to some of the, the next slides that we're going to talk about, Ken. And I think, you know, to Julie's point on the, the base case slide that we showed, you have to 
to understand your U.S. footprint and what the growth pro profile is going forward. You know, to the extent that in the previous example, we had two of excess interest or 10 of excess interest that was carried forward, it isn't necessarily wasted, but you have to understand, will you ever be able to utilize that excess interest on a go-forward basis? To the extent that you're in a position where you may not have, you know, significant growth in the U.S. going forward, or you might have static growth, then you might want to consider what are other ways to, you know, change your existing U.S. debt profile. This example that we're showing here, conceptually because of the way that the 163J limitation is now defined, where you can use interest income to also be counted for purposes of 163J, what we've done here is let, let's assume country X is a country that has two things going for it. One, it will allow you to deduct a related party instrument where you've had a distribution to your, your U.S. parent. And secondly, let's assume that there are you know, minimal to zero withholding taxes that apply when you distribute a note in this example from country X to the U.S. parent. If, if done appropriately, what we've done in this example is we've essentially shifted the 10 of excess interest expense that we had in the U.S. to our foreign country jurisdiction and also been able to achieve a deductible benefit in that foreign country. So rather than the prior example where you have 10 of excess interest and it's carried forward and you don't really get a current financial statement benefit out of it, you have 10 of interest that's now been pushed down to local country X. It's actually more than that in this example, 90. And you're going to get a deduction for that in the local country for the uh, interest amount. The U.S. parent is now going to utilize that interest income to maximize its 163J limitation. And you've shifted your borrowing profile so that you don't have the excess interest on a go-forward basis. There are a lot of other issues you need to be considering and be mindful of when you do something like this. Um, in particular, the foreign currency associated with the note between the U.S. parent and the foreign country borrower. You'll want to think through those items as you're potentially shifting, you know, your intercompany interest expense from the U.S. to the foreign country in this example. Yeah, I mean, this, this highlights a great, just a simple shift of pushing interest from the U.S. down to the foreign country. You end up with full deductibility in the U.S. of the interest that you've got, and you've got the incremental benefit in the foreign country. So, And, and depending, again, on which country country X is, I mean, administratively, this should not be too difficult for you to um, be able to go out and do. So... If you're looking to do something relatively quickly to maximize your 163J uh, footprint, then this is something you might want to consider. And this has come up, um, you know, as, as we're going around the country and having a lot of discussions with numerous clients, and it doesn't surprise me the poll showed that as well. I mean, a, a topic of interest in every meeting is what should our, our capital structure look like? Where should we be borrowing? Should we still borrow in the U.S. because the U.S. rate is now 21 you know, to the extent we have excess interest, or should we borrow locally where, depending on what countries they are, you know, there are still a lot of countries that have rates above 21% and uh, would allow a deduction for those borrowings in those countries. That's great. Should we move into the next example? Yes. So, so the next example is um, a little bit more extreme of what we just previously talked about, which is, would you actually borrow externally in your foreign countries as opposed to just borrowing in the U.S.? So in the prior example, we had you know, a related party note between country X and the U.S. parent in order to shift a portion of the interest income into the U.S. And, and maximize the 163J limit at that level. In this example, what we're actually proposing is you may borrow locally at a bank depending on you know, what your profile is. So in this example, we've borrowed 2000 locally um, from a bank in country X. Country X should then be able to distribute the capital from the loan back to the U.S. 
Um, hopefully there's no withholding tax on that distribution and you have either PTI or DRD 245 cap A exempt income when you distribute the cash back to the U.S. And then the U.S. would use the capital received from the foreign country dividend to then potentially repay its debt with its uh, third-party bank. I, again, there are a lot of issues that you're going to want to consider whether or not there you know, are prepayment penalties or other things that you need to be mindful of with borrowing and paying off your U.S. debt. But what this example proves out um, is that the, the foreign country rate arbitrage is higher than the U.S. So we're deducting at 30% in this example rather than 21% in the U.S. So you're ahead 9% for that foreign country borrowing as long as you're able to get the full deduction in that country. This, again, has come up many, many times in a lot of our meetings. And it's, it's actually very interesting because it's causing a, a deeper connection between tax and treasury and the other um, pieces of the business as you're going through this analysis. This really can't be done on a standalone basis from a company perspective. That's great. With that, thank you, panelists. I think it's been a really great discussion. And for those of you who joined us for the discussion today, thank you so much for taking a portion of your day to, to uh, talk with us about tax.